0: I mean, if I were to ask you, what is Palm Sunday, what would you say? Or if I were to ask you, what is the triumphal entry, uh, what would you say? You would probably say, well, that's the time when Jesus came in and he was we read it riding on a donkey and, and so forth. But what, what makes this passage particularly difficult is the familiarity of it. I think sometimes we come into a text like this and think maybe immediately that we've grasped what the text is all about. We think we know what it's all about. But I want you to pay careful attention this morning to the text. In fact, you may even be surprised by the text. I trust that you're going to learn something new, learn something about our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now remember as you step into chapter 12 and we're down in verse 12 already this morning that back in chapter 11, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. In fact, go back just for a moment to the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. And in verse 47, after Lazarus had been raised, it said the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. I mean, it's hard to believe that after the resurrection of Lazarus, that they really had made a plan that had been placed earlier in the Gospel of John. But their plan was simply this. Remember, look at 11.53. So from that day on, it says that they made plans to put him to death. And so Lazarus is raised from the dead, and the leaders are making a covert plan to put him to death. Now you remember we started last week again at chapter 12.1. Look at that opening phrase. It says that it was just six days before the Passover. So we had noticed that that Passover, Good Friday, would be coming on that Friday. It is Sunday of that week. And so as we came to John chapter 12, really we look at the last chapters of John's entire gospel. Almost half of it are dedicated to the last week of his life. And as Passover was six days away, there was a meal there. And that meal included Lazarus and our Lord. Do you remember Mary had broken the vial of perfume, poured the contents out in all of the gospel records over both his head, and it ran down his body and onto his feet, and then she let her hair down really as a rag to wipe his feet in an utter expression of love. Now, we noted there, if you look back in 12.7, that Jesus, Judas, of course, was wondering why it was broken and spent. But Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it, there's the key, for the day of my burial. She had prepared him for his burial. Hardly maybe anybody there knew that just in six days that he would be lifted up. But Mary had kept it for that very purpose, that she might anoint our Lord for his burial. And so as we come into 12.12, here you can see that it is the Passion Week. It is what we call Palm Sunday. It is the triumphal entry. Now, this event is an incredible event in the life of our Lord. In many ways, it's a watershed issue. When you begin to put all the accounts together, Matthew says this in 21.10, that the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Because you remember, after he had raised Lazarus from the dead, a large crowd had gathered, and it was Passover season. And so the city was stirred, and and they asked, who is this? Luke reports of this event, of the triumphal entry, that the city was so electrified that if the people don't praise him, do you remember what Jesus said? That even the what? The stones are going to cry out. And so he's going to make his way in from Bethany into, this, into the city of Jerusalem. Now as he approaches Jerusalem on Sunday, there is an entry, if you will, fit for a king. There are massive crowds. I'll say something about that in a moment. But there are messianic descriptions from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ, as he comes into this city of Jerusalem, is going to fulfill. As he comes into this city, they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. However, though, the discerning reader knows, you know, that he is moving towards his death by crucifixion and that the same crowds that thundered forth praise on Sunday would be the same crowds, many of them, shouting for his crucifixion on Friday. In fact, he who fulfilled Messianic prophecy on Palm Sunday would have a spear thrust into his side and crucified on Friday. His triumph, if you will, what we'll look at today, will quickly turn into open rage, eventually condemning him to death on a cross. And so, we need to listen this morning. This is a key, key passage. And what I'd like to do is arrange this triumphal entry around prophecy that reveals his death on a cross for you. Okay? Okay? It's the triumphal entry. It's built around prophecy and it's revealing his death on a cross for you. And so, what I want to do is follow the triumphal entry by looking at three reactions from different people uh, and different groups of people at the event itself, okay? I want to look at first the reaction of the crowd with you, then, secondly, we'll look at the reaction of the disciples. And then thirdly, we'll look at the reaction of the Pharisees. And after we get to the reaction of the Pharisees, I'll try to bear down, if you will, on you, on the implication, on the so what of this passage, okay? But let's look first at the reaction of the crowd. The reaction of the crowd. Look at the text in 12.12. It says that the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast Heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now, the Bible's re- really clear there. It says 12 12, the next day. Say the next day from what? Well, the next day that he was previously in 12 1 through 11 in Bethany at that dinner, if you will. It's Sunday now. It's the next day. It's Passion Week. And the crowd was surging to meet him. In fact, it says there, you can see it in 12.12, it was a large crowd. Glance back down with your eyes at chapter 12 and verse 9. There it says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And so this is a large crowd. This is a massive crowd. In fact, look at chapter 12 in verse 18. It says, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done the sign. And so as he converges into Jerusalem, he came first to Bethany. This crowd now is swelling. In fact, look back at chapter 11 in verse 55. It said, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And the Bible says, many went up to the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And so this is a massive crowd, a big crowd. You say, well, Scott, how many was it in this crowd? I mean, how many do you think? And, and we can't be entirely sure how big this crowd was. But in all those places, we have a massive crowd. There was one record of Josephus, the historian, somebody had done the math, that at one particular Passover, there were 256,000 lambs that were slain for that event. And somebody said, if you count maybe maybe, uh, 10 people per family per Uh, one of those lambs slain, this crowd was rising up to about two and a half million people, okay? So when I say crowd, I want you to think we're not talking about a crowd here. We're talking about a potential crowd of millions. In fact, Josephus, he's a historian in another one of his writings, not this particular Passover, a few years after this, estimated that the crowd was 2.7 million Jews that came into Jerusalem in the mid-60s. So you have to understand, when we say a crowd, we're talking hundreds of thousands, if not a couple million, and Josephus was clear to say that that was was 2.7 million Jews, not even counting the Gentiles. And so here in 12.12, as you see it's very clear they had come to the feast and heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so there's a buzz into the air. There's, it's an electrifying event, if you will. So look what happened in verse 13. It says that they took palm branches or that they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And so they took these palm trees or these branches from the trees and they went out to meet him. And as they went out to meet him, if you can picture this, they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna is what they're saying. It's interesting, that's only mentioned in John's gospel. And John says that they took these palm branches. Uh, it's, it's fascinating here. They, there were palm trees, at least date palm trees, that were all over in Israel, particularly in Jericho. And if they were traveling, it would be very customary for them to cut these palm branches. You say, well, Scott, what's a palm branch? The palm branch in Scripture, it, it really was this. It was, for the Jewish people, a symbol of deliverance. In other words, when you'd see them waving palms, that's what it represented. It was a symbol of deliverance. It was a symbol of joy. For them, it was a symbol of salvation. But what's interesting is you don't find palm branches in the Old Testament associated with Passover. Those palm branches are associated with what we would call the Feast of Tabernacles, What's interesting, though, here is a historian wrote on this, and I thought it was fascinating because he was describing what is known as the intertestamental period. That was the time between, obviously, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes we say there was a 400-year gap from when Malachi was penned until the pinning and the dawning of Jesus Christ of course, written sometime after that, but a 400-year gap. But there was an extraordinary event that took place that would define uh, forever for the Jews in terms of their national identity for centuries to come. Here's where these palm branches came from. Okay, In the 2nd century BC, the temple was desecrated by a man, and I've shared this with you before. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV. He was the leader of the Syrian empire, and he came into the Jewish temple, you remember, and he desecrated it, and he he offered a swine on the altar. It was utter blasphemy to the Jewish people. And so in response to this man named Antiochus Epiphanes, a Jewish man, his name was Mattathias. And Mattathias was a very committed Jew. He was very committed, if you will, to the covenant of Israel. And he was determined to rescue the temple from the evasion of the Syrians. This was before, obviously, Roman occupation. And Mattathias became the leader of what we would just call a guerrilla group that fought against the Assyrians, the, the, not Assyrians, but the Syrians. And when he died, Mattathias, he gave the leadership of this insurrectionist movement. It passed down to his son, and his son was named Judas. In fact, you know him in history as Judas Maccabeus. Not Judas Iscariot, but Judas Maccabeus. And his name means the hammer. And Judas Maccabeus became a national hero. He was kind of like a Hebrew Robin Hood. He wreaked havoc among the troops of the Syrians. And he put so much pressure on the Syrians that in 164 BC, okay, they released the temple for the Jews to practice their faith again. And that, met, that event was met with so much celebration that a new feast, do you remember this, was instituted and that feast at that point in 164 B.C. was called the Feast of Dedication. Some people call it the Feast of Lights. Jewish people celebrate that event today. It's called, do you remember what? Hanukkah. They celebrate that. Judas Maccabeus delivered, if you will, the temple itself from Syrian occupation and restored worship in the temple. But it was actually later on, some years later, that Judas's brother, Simon Maccabeus, drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem altogether in 141 B.C., And when that happened, Simon was promoted kind of to a national hero. And that day was celebrated with what I think I would just call a ticker tape parade. Kind of like a sports team in our day when they come through the city. But on that day and in that parade, the Jews celebrated his victory with a number of musical instruments. And they celebrated him coming into the city by waving palm branches. And so for the Jewish people, for the Jewish nation, the palm branch became a symbol, if you can see it this way, of military victory. In fact, that symbolism became so rooted in the Jewish DNA that when the Jews later revolted against the Roman Empire, somewhere between 65 and 70 AD, they minted their own coins with the image of it, on it, of a palm branch. And it became their national symbol of victory. So watch this, beloved. When our Lord then comes into Jerusalem, they are celebrating Victory. It is a symbol of joy. It is a symbol for them, even in that sense of salvation. And they saw Christ as their Messiah, their deliverer. He is the one that's going to, I'm sure, in their minds, ach- uh, you know, uh, obtain military victory. And so as he comes in, now remember he's at Bethany, and Bethany is below. They're ascending just two miles of Jerusalem. They're ascending up the hill to get to Jerusalem into the Passover season. But the other gospel writers say that these people went down to meet him, if you will, down two miles. So you've got people coming up in celebration and people coming down. And as they're coming down and coming up, they're waving these palm branches now john doesn't say it here but the other gospel in the gospel of mark as he's coming up to jerusalem the high elevation mark says that they're putting coats on the road what do you mean coats on the road it's a it's a gesture of reverence it's a gesture of honor for a king it is a display of his dignity if you will that the king himself has arrived in jerusalem He is, in their minds, a conqueror. He is a deliverer. I mean, beloved, he just raised a man from the dead. It's Passover season. They're now presently under Roman occupation. And if he can deliver a man from the dead and from the grave, then maybe he can deliver us and be that conquering hero that we want. Now, you'll note what it says. Look in the Bible again. I was referring to that. They took... Branches of palm trees. And they went out to meet him. In other words, they're going out to a victorious king. They're going out to a king who's returning from battle. And as they go out, they are crying. Crying out. Hosanna. Hosanna. And they're just repeatedly shouting Hosanna. And you say, what does that mean? Hosanna in the Hebrew just means save us now. It's literally what it means. Save us, we pray. And so as our Lord comes into the triumphal entry, he comes into these branches being waved. He comes into shouts of Hosanna, and really what they're saying is, save us now. You say, well, where does the Hosanna come from? Well, listen, just like we have certain things we do at holidays, they did this at Passover. They referred to a group of psalms, and they were called the Hallel Psalms. In fact, would you take your Bible, let me show it to you, in Psalm 118, okay, would you turn there? These are the Hallel Psalms, and they would use these psalms here in the Old Testament. They were psalms of praise. Sometimes they were even called the Egyptian halal, if you will, because they were praising God in these psalms for their deliverance from Egypt. But we all know that when you look at Psalm 113 through 118, these are messianic psalms. These are psalms of praise. These are psalms of deliverance. These are psalms that here speak of the person of Christ. Let me, let me just give you an example of that we will sing at Christmas, Joy to what? The world. We all know that song. And as Christmas comes before us in eight months, when we sing that song, we all know Joy to the World. Well, I just want you to know that what you sing and know and could retain by heart, the Jewish people had certain songs that they sung, and they sang them at these festive occasions. And the people, the Jewish people, sang the Hallel at Passover. Maybe another way for me to put it is, is it's their fight song. And if you were a Jew and you were at Passover season, you would go into the temple or you would hear out of the temple every morning of Passover week the songs of praise. Praise. And the psalms of praise. And one of these was Psalm 118. Let me read it to you. Just begin at verse 21. Now, Remember, these are, are songs, that, words that they put to music. But in 118, verse 21, follow. I thank you. You have answered me. You have become my salvation. And here's Messianic. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And do you see it in 25? This is Hosanna. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and we bless him from the house of the Lord. Can you just picture that? As he comes into Jerusalem, they are waving these palm branches in celebration. History would tell us they probably had a myrtle, maybe even a willow in their hand, and they would take this myrtle, and they would take this willow, and they would tie it, to the palm. And as they come into Jerusalem, and as the groups coming up from Bethany, and other people went down to meet him, and as they make their way up the hill, they are crying out, Hosanna. And I want you to know, it's just not mom and dad. This is Passover. Everybody's converging on Jerusalem. This isn't one that you can just Send it there and stay worshiping in another city or town. They were required to be there. Every man, every woman, every child is there. And they're there with these palm branches. Hosanna. In fact, it says, Hosanna. Look back to John chapter 12. It says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Obviously, Hosanna in the highest is a gift from God. He dwells in the highest heavens. He is worthy of all praise. And then they cry out in verse 13, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And you ask, well, who is that? Who is the one coming in the name of the Lord? Well, in Psalm 118, it's the Messiah. And so they look and appear as though they're Representing and shouting praise to their Messiah. He certainly came by the authority of that supreme name. And I think it's made clear. Look at the next phrase in verse 13. Here's how they identified him. Even the king of Israel. And so you put it all together, there's antiphonal praise, chorus of praise. Those who went up front and those who came from the back were shouting Hosanna. In fact, in Mark's gospel, it even adds this, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And so there is, beloved, a reasonable thought that the long-awaited Messiah in the eyes of some of them had arrived. And I would just uh, point this out to you: you notice that he didn't stop this, right? At no place did he stop and say, "This is not right." In fact, he's orchestrating this event. They wanted to kill him before, but he slipped out of his out of their midst. And so now, as he comes into Passover week, it's not quite the right time. It's just five days off, presumably at this point. And he didn't stop the praise. In fact. Actually, in Luke's gospel in 19, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Because after he entered into that triumphal entry in Jerusalem, he went into the temple and he cleansed it. And the Pharisees said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, and I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So, beloved, grasp the picture here. Passover is at hand. This is a time of national deliverance from Egypt that they're celebrating. But maybe, maybe it's even more than just deliverance from Egypt. Maybe this is, in their minds, deliverance from Rome. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Could this be David's greater son? And so they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now, Lord, save us now. Now, it's interesting... Verse 14, look at it. Jesus, it says, as they're beginning to make that trek, found a donkey. And the scripture says, a young donkey, and he sat on it just as as it is written. And here's the prophecy. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, and he is sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, John's briefer here. You can go read the other accounts in the Gospels. It just He's orchestrating all the events. He sent two disciples, and they found this donkey, and they said the master has need of it, and the master released it, maybe thinking that they were believers as well. But all of this is he has supernatural knowledge of all the events. But you ask here, and you look here. He found a donkey, a young donkey, and he sat on it. Now, why did he do that? Why would he sit on a donkey? And here's the, here's the answer. Because almost over 600 years before this event of the triumphal entry, the prophet Zechariah prophesied that during the Messiah's entrance into Jerusalem, he would come on a what? On a donkey. You say, well, where is that? Well, I want you to turn to Zechariah, okay? Let me show you. You say, where's Zechariah? Well, if you just go back to Matthew, go back two books. You go back to Malachi, and then after Malachi, going the other way, you will find Zechariah. And I I want you to see this because Jesus sat on a donkey. You say, well, why would he do that? Well, in the opening part of Zechariah, he is judging, if you will, Israel's enemies. And then it says this in Zechariah 9.9. Just see it with your eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Here's the phrase humble and mounted on a what donkey on a colt the fall of a donkey listen when our lord jesus christ came into the city of jerusalem on palm sunday at the triumphal entry he fulfilled prophecy That moment that he came into the city. In fact, Matthew 21 4 and 5 says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. And so, as this triumphal entry is proceeding, he sits on a donkey. Now, if you can just walk with me here going forward because this is fascinating. You say, well, Scott, why is it fascinating? Well, because I think it's a game changer here, okay? Because he doesn't enter into the city on a war horse. They they would think that, in, at least in their identity, that a king coming back from battle is going to enter into the city on a white charger, if you will, on a, on a white war horse as a conquering hero. And can you imagine what they were doing as he comes into the city of Jerusalem and the temple guard is mounted everywhere? And they probably didn't have wires those days, but I think they were saying, hey, there's a big crowd out here, but um, nothing to be concerned about. Uh, no, no, he's not on a white horse. No, there's no military presence with him. We, we can't see any signs of any kind of clubs, or any kind of mob, they're just shouting Hosanna, but he's on this thing called a donkey. You know, the donkeys were so short that sometimes the men had to lift their, their, their legs up so their feet didn't hit the ground. So you say, well, what's going on in here? Well, he's coming in peace on a donkey. He is, if you will, coming in humility. So that's first the reaction of the crowd, I'll say more of that in a second. But secondly, what's the reaction? Look back in John. What's the reaction of the disciples? You say, well, how did the disciples respond to this? Well, that's the second reaction. Look at it. In 16, the disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They just didn't understand You say, well, why didn't they understand? Well, they didn't understand because Jesus wasn't glorified. It means this, they didn't understand because he had not gone to the cross and he had not been raised from the dead. I mean, think about what the disciples were thinking about. They were thinking that he'd set the kingdom up. They were thinking that he would overthrow Rome. They were thinking that he'd bring military victory. Even the disciples thought that. Do you remember after the resurrection, they're gathered in that room in Acts chapter one, and they said, is it now this the time that you're gonna set the kingdom up? So even though our Lord kept saying that he would die, I still think they had aspirations that the kingdom was coming, that Jesus was going to set it up, and so they just didn't understand you remember earlier in John's gospel, he said that he was going to destroy the temple? Remember, and then he said, in three days, I'm going to raise it up again. And it said in 2.22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So listen, the disciples didn't understand. I think it's honest. I don't think this makes them foolish, they didn't get it. I mean even after he died they were out fishing. Were they not? They didn't understand. And no wonder when Jesus was walking on the road with the on the road to Emmaus with the disciples and he said, "Oh foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted for them and all of the scriptures, things concerning himself. So beloved, listen, the disciples couldn't see the Lord of glory, who was standing right in front of them, but after his resurrection, after the giving of the Holy Spirit, John 14 through16, they would understand. But here our Lord's on a mission. And his mission must be completed first. And his victory or his deliverance, beloved, would not come from the violent overthrow of Rome, but it would come by defeating sin and death on the cross. He would die for you. So here's first the reaction of the crowd. Secondly, the reaction of the disciples. And then thirdly, we'll just call it the reaction of the Pharisees. The reaction of the Pharisees. Look at it in verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, I love this, continued to bear witness. In other words, they were spreading the word. They were spreading the word in chapter 11. They were spreading the word in chapter 12. And as they were spreading the word, this crowd was building larger and larger. But others, it says, were attracted there in verse 17 by the sign that he performed. In fact, what's interesting about verse 17 here is I think it mirrors uh, John chapter 12. Go back to John 12 verse 9. Look at it. Very similar. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and they were believing in Jesus. And so now as you come to 1217, the Pharisees, they're very concerned. They feel like they're going to lose their place. They feel like they're going to lose their nation. And so some were following them because they were the eyewitness and they witnessed the resurrection. Could you imagine the problems that created? Hey, I was there. Hey, I was there when they pulled the stone back. I was there when this guy Lazarus walked out. I was there and they had to unbind the guy. The guy had cloths all around him. And maybe somebody's saying to that person, I don't believe you. And then this person is saying, you can say you don't believe me, but I was there. I saw it. Maybe the other disciples were talking and they're sitting with him at that dinner and they're dining with him in 12, 1 through 11. And so as they begin to spread this word and others who didn't see it wanted to see another sign. But for the Pharisees, there was wickedness in their heart. Matthew's gospel says in Matthew twenty one fifteen that when the chief priest, think about it this, And the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. The Bible says that they were indignant. They were mad. They were angry. They were angry that over this person there would be such crowds and fanfare. So listen, beloved. Here's the implications for you. So, okay, the triumphal entry, what am I to Take out of this. Well, certainly there's a number of things we can say. I would say that Jesus is not to be confessed in pomp and circumstance. He's to be confessed at his cross on your behalf. That's really the issue here. They come in shouting his praise, but they'll lift him up and shout to crucify him by Friday. And our Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior, was so committed to the cross... So committed to his mission that all he did was set his face like flint. It says in Luke chapter 9 and chapter 19. And so though the crowd shouted praise to the Lord, listen, they missed the cross. Your king must suffer first. Your king must die. Then he can be crowned. And I think they missed the Messiah altogether. They missed his humility. They missed the fact that he came in peace. They were looking like people in our own day for the right political leader. They were looking for elevation from some other means. And he comes in utter humility. He comes not on a white war horse. He comes riding in on a donkey. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9-9. As he comes in, they're shouting out Hosanna from Psalm 118. He is the king, but he's a king that's different than the king they wanted. He's a king that first must die. And so he does not in his first coming come in power he comes in humility and grace and certainly beloved they missed psalm 118 verse 22 that the stone which the builders rejected has become the what the cornerstone they missed it all together they were looking for a political overthrow of rome but jesus says before victory here there must be death in fact in many ways can i say this to you Palm Sunday was not the triumphal entry of an earthly king. It was the triumphal entry of a king who would die on the cross for you. You just have to walk out knowing how and what he did for you and knowing what he did for your sin and knowing what he did to relieve your sin. That moving away from all of that stuff, in fact, there's some commentators who expressly believe that he came in to heat up the persecution by this entry. In other words, as he did, it was foaming the anger of the religious leaders who would be shouting for his death. So listen, we call it the triumphal entry. I I suppose we can call it the triumphal entry for what it caused us who believe in him. But in some ways, it was a tragic entry. You say, how could it be a tragic entry? Because the Jewish nation missed it altogether. Their king had arrived, and they missed it. Their king had come, and they crucify him. Their king had come, and rather than celebrate him, they put a spear in his side. The king came, and rather than exalting that one... They mock him and spit upon him and beat him and thrust a crown of thorns in his head. Bring somebody on Friday night, March 30th, as we celebrate his death on our behalf. So listen, we can call it triumphal. I'm glad because as long as you understand of what it means to you, but in some ways it becomes tragic. You say, well, Scott, why would it become tragic Well, listen, you don't read this here, but I could read this to you in Luke 19. It was right after he entered into the triumphal entry, okay? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He goes in Luke's gospel into the temple and cleanses the temple, okay? But it says this in 1941. Imagine when he drew near and he saw the city The Bible says he what? He wept over it. So again, again, palm, hosanna, I, I get it. But when our Lord's riding into the city, and again, he's coming up to the city of Jerusalem, and as he comes into it, your Savior weeps. There is a human ethos here that is unbelievable. He weeps over it. And here's what he said, would that you, even you, had known this day that the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down, it says, to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation course, he's talking about the destruction of the Jewish people or nation temple in 70 A.D. They didn't know the time of their visitation. You know, I got to tell you, when I've been in Israel, um, I can only just share this with you. I probably shared it before. There's probably one scene that for me is greater than any other scene in the whole land. I, I don't know if Most people would say that, but for me it was. We're standing at the temple, and the temple rises high. Of course, it's been destroyed, of course, in 70 AD and so forth, and the temple mount by the Muslims is right there. But the thing that I always, in fact, I still can remember right where I was standing and just stopping and looking and just staring and what I was staring at is these big, massive, just rocks and beams that were standing, just piled up at the bottom of the temple. You say, well, what were they? It's the fulfillment of Luke 19. It says there, it says that um, you, they will not leave one stone upon what? Another. And what the Romans did is they burned and torched the whole temple, as you know. But in that temple, up high there, they had gold in between the rocks. And in their effort to raise the temple, if you will, they burnt the temple and they wanted the gold And so they took these massive stones and pushed them off the top of the temple down to the bottom, just as it says here they're not going to leave one stone upon another. They just, instead of being stacked on the top, they fell all the way to the bottom. Did you know that that was our Lord's words at the week of his Passion Week? And so listen, many were blinded by his coming, but forget that. Do you see him clearly this day? He's here, the word's been preached. This is the truth of his word. I would hate you, hate for you to miss the day of your visitation. Oh, Palm Sunday's triumphal because he went to the cross for you. He suffered as a criminal that you might be set free. I think here's the point of this passage. He suffers and he dies for you. He does that before he comes as a conquering king. I was reading this week. You can let me know afterward if this is not helpful to you. But I was reading about a king in Africa. I just thought it was interesting. This might be somewhat typical in certain places of the country. But it was on December 4th, 1977 in Bengui. It was the capital of the Central African Empire. And the world press witnessed the coronation of his majesty. His name was Bocasa the First. The price tag for that one event designed and choreographed by French designer Alvier Bryce was $25 million for this coronation service. At 10.10 a.m. that morning, the blare of the trumpets and the roll of the drums announced the approach of his majesty. The procession began with eight of Bocasa's 29 official children parading down the royal carpet to their seats. They were followed by Jean Bedell Bocasa II, heir to the throne, dressed in a white admiral's uniform with a gold braid. He was seated on a red pillow to the left of the throne. Catherine followed, the favorite of Bocasa's nine wives. She was wearing a $73,000 gown made by Lanvin of Paris, strewn with pearls she had picked out herself. The emperor had arrived in a gold eagle bedeckled imperial coach drawn by six matched Anglo-Norman horses. He wore, imagine this, a 32-pound robe decorated with 785,000 strewn pearls and gold embroidery. On his brow, he wore a gold crown of laurel wreaths, a symbol of the favor of the gods. As the sacred march came to conclusion, Bokassa seated himself in his 2.5 million eagle throne, took his gold laurel wreath off, and took his 2.5 million dollar crown, which was topped with an 80 carat diamond and placed upon his head. That's a coronation for a king in Africa. I mean, just two years later, while Bokassa was out of the country, the French engineered a successful coup against him, and he lost his whole kingdom and reign just two years later. Kings do that, don't they? But I just want you to know that your king, God's only son, his mission was clear for you. Our king must die. You know it in Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon his chastisement, it brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him The iniquity of what? Us all. Do you know him this morning? Listen, we have the greatest king. We have the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the alpha and the omega. But God sent his son to this earth to die in your place. Do you know him this morning? Have you come to saving faith in him? Would you look down in John chapter 12 and verse 31? He said, now... He says in 2031 is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, okay? And I, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of the cross, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He died in your place. Have you put your faith in the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, Listen, if you're visiting this morning, this is our entire focus to reveal the person of God and to reveal the person of Christ. God gave his own son to die in your place and you make that happen in your own life by trusting him by faith and placing your faith completely in his work and no other work and no other merit and no other means and I pray that, that you have done that this morning.